Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 7, Win the War, Lose the Peace. The Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 provides us with a chilling glimpse into the changing nature of warfare by the early 20th century. It represents not only the first major clash of arms since the Franco-Prussian conflict of 1870, but also the first widespread application of industrial weaponry. Deadlier machine guns, powerful artillery, hand grenades, field telephones, and the extensive use of trenches and concrete fortifications, features which became all too prevalent during the First World War. But also like the Great War, the opening stages of the conflict were defined by rapid troop deployment and quick aggressive assaults designed to overwhelm enemy defenders. But soon enough, the war became bogged down when Russian defense stiffened, and the result was a deadly war of attrition where blood-curdling Japanese assaults were cut down in the face of a desperate but determined opposition. When the Treaty of Portsmouth was signed in September 1905, neither side had emerged the clear winner. The Russians were humiliated, but the Japanese were equally exhausted and had been forced into accepting an unsatisfactory peace. The conflict had lasted just barely over a year, but had resulted in a combined total of nearly 400,000 casualties, a deadly lesson which would go unheeded by the next generation of military leaders. The origins of the conflict can be traced back to the Russian occupation of Manchuria in August of 1900 during the height of the Boxer Rebellion. You'll recall that since the 1890s, Russia had been undergoing a series of industrial and economic overhauls, which had been made possible through loans floated by their French allies. The mastermind behind many of these renovations was a man by the name of Sergei Vita, who was one of the most powerful voices in St. Petersburg, and by 1894 had been made Minister of Finance shortly before the death of Tsar Alexander III. Vita had immediately distinguished himself as a capable administrator who helped stabilize the fluctuating Russian economy by making two key changes. He put a government monopoly on alcohol sales, always a good way to make a few bucks, and went further by putting the Russian ruble onto the gold standard, which made conversion much easier within European and international markets. But Vita's obsession had always been the railway. The man dreamed of a national line which would connect his nation's interests in the Far East to the interior. Partly influenced by the Canadian Pacific Railway, Vita had begun construction on the Trans-Siberian Railway line in 1891, which would slowly connect St. Petersburg to Russia's only viable port in Asia, the port of Vladivostok, which was tucked in an inlet near the Korean-Manchurian border on the northeast banks of the Sea of Japan. In 1896, with Nicholas II now Tsar, Vita broke ground when he successfully negotiated with the Chinese government to secure additional railway tracks through Manchuria, which would then allow trains coming to and from Vladivostok to shortcut through the Chinese interior without having to take a long detour around it. Between 1897 and 1900, construction on this new railway line, dubbed the East China Railway, was in full swing, and with the seizing of Port Arthur in March of 1898, Russia had now finally secured a warm water port, which could handle shipping all year round. You see, unlike France, Germany, or Great Britain, Russia holds the distinct advantage of being the only European nation which could transport goods directly from the markets in China without having to rely on overseas shipping. The problem which faced Vita, however, was that it was over 6,500 kilometers from St. Petersburg to either Port Arthur or Vladivostok which meant that an extensive railway line connecting the two key ports through Manchuria was of a national necessity, 
because making an 8,000-kilometer detour through Siberia simply was not that feasible. But of course, railways can also be opportune targets for sabotage. So when the Boxer Uprising was picking up steam in the early months of 1900, it immediately threatened the sections of the East China Railway which passed through Manchuria. Vita, who had always used diplomacy and bribery to get his way, initially opposed the idea of a military occupation of Manchuria because it felt it would threaten Russia's relationship with China, which had remained on fairly stable terms since the 1880s. However, as the situation became more desperate and Nicholas faced increasing pressure from the Minister of War, General Alexei Kuropatkin, the Tsar figured it was in his national best interest to secure the Manchurian Railway from Boxer insurgency, and so gave Kuropatkin the go-ahead to occupy the province. But as we discussed in Episode 5, the problem posed by the occupation of Manchuria was that the Japanese were now concerned over the security of Korea. With Tsarist forces now in Manchuria, it meant that they were now in a position to strike into the Korean peninsula from the north. When the Boxer Rebellion was finally put down by August 1900, and while talks with Lord Lansdowne and Great Britain were still ongoing, the Japanese continued to negotiate with Russia over the situation in Manchuria and Korea. From 1902 to 1903, the talks were largely conducted by the Minister of War, Alexei Kuropatkin, and the Japanese Foreign Minister, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Komura Jitaro. In his exhaustive study of the diplomatic chess game leading to the outbreak of the war, John Albert White points out that Jitaro had become so desperate to reach a deal, he offered Kuropatkin that his government would recognize Russian sovereignty in Manchuria as long as the Tsar would pull back his forces from the Korean border. Now this may sound like a pretty sweet deal, right? Certainly a win-win situation for both parties. Korea would be safe, and Russia could continue to guard the Manchurian section of the East China Railway. But what kept this deal from floating was that Tsar Nicholas II, who had the final word on anything to do with foreign or domestic policy, was a chronic procrastinator, and was always reluctant to commit to anything one way or the other. Sergei Vita famously commented that the Tsar was like a well-intentioned child, who was so out of touch with reality that it made dealings with him almost unbearable. While this may seem like a harsh critique of the Russian emperor, it does allude to an interesting historical nugget, which weaved a thread throughout the pre-war diplomacy. Due to the simple fact that Russia and China are part of the same continent, there was a strong belief within the aristocracy at St. Petersburg that it was Russian destiny to eventually expand and conquer the Far East for themselves, sort of like the Russian equivalent of Manifest Destiny. China, Korea, Japan were all seen as nations which one day in the future would have to be absorbed into the Russian kingdom. This ideology was nothing new, and had begun to take root right around the period of the First Opium War of 1839. But it was further compounded by the anti-Asian attitudes which was rampant during this time. So despite warnings from Vita, Kuropatkin, and the foreign minister, Count Vladimir Lambsdorff, the Tsar never took the Japanese ultimatum seriously. To the Tsar, the Japanese were mere children to Russian Orthodox civilization. They might kick up a fuss, but the presence of Russian prestige would eventually convince them to back down. When asked if he felt a war with Japan could occur, Nicholas dismissed the question by saying, quote, no, because I do not wish it. Unquote. This superiority complex was not restricted to Russia, mind you, as most European and North American nations at this time did harbor strong views of bigotry towards the so-called yellow races. But in the case of Russia, this short-sightedness did come to have some unique repercussions. But the failure of the negotiations can also be blamed on the fact that neither side were willing to trust the other. 
to Nicholas, pulling his forces off the border would only leave Manchuria open for a Japanese invasion. And as the Tsar delayed his response, as he most often did, it only signaled to Kimura Jataro and the Japanese military that the Russians were indeed using the talks as a smokescreen to mask the reinforcements that were already en route to the border. But while the Tsar thought he had the luxury of time, the Japanese harbored no such illusions. Like the rest of the Western powers, Japan had always been well aware of the proverbial sleeping bear that was the Russian war machine. It was feared that given enough time, the Tsar could mobilize an army of about 5 to 6 million men and simply overwhelm any opposition with ease. The Japanese Minister of War, Teruyushi Mazataki, understood this problem and noted that its armed forces had no chance of defeating Russia in a prolonged war, but could, if executed properly, bring it to its knees through a succession of quick aggressive assaults designed to catch defenders off guard. This military doctrine also meant that time was of the essence, and the longer the Tsar delayed, the Japanese window of opportunity was closing by the day, and so on February the 6th, 1904, after their final ultimatum received no response, Mazataki issued the order to the Admiral of the Japanese Combined Fleet, Togo Heirichira, to destroy the Russian Pacific Fleet stationed at Port Arthur. As the Combined Fleet steamed past the southwestern coast of Korea, it was divided into two attack forces. The first force, carrying Imperial Marines, disembarked on the peninsula and quickly occupied the capital Seoul, facing only minimal opposition. The remaining vessels remained on course towards Port Arthur, and when dawn broke on the morning of February 8, 1904, Tojo's armada unleashed the first salvos upon the unsuspecting Russian garrison, catching several warships still in anchor. Naval engagements off Port Arthur would continue until May of that year, as Russian relief sent from squadrons in the Red and Black Seas would continually repulsed by the highly trained Japanese gunnery. Meanwhile, on the land, after securing Seoul, the Imperial Marines had met only sparse resistance as they advanced up the Korean coastline, and by April were now posed across the Yalu River, on the border of Korea and South Manchuria. But by now, Russian military response had become more disciplined. A fierce battle along the Yalu, which began on April 27th, marked a turning point in the conflict as the Japanese troops, under the command of Major General Kuroki Tamamoto, eventually broke through the Russian defenses and penetrated deep into Manchuria, along its southern coastline by May the 1st. As Kuroki marched along the coast, his forces linked up with additional reinforcements who just landed in Manchuria, and the combined army linked up and made straight for Port Arthur, finally closing off the port in a ring of steel by May the 14th. The port was now under siege from the sea to the south and to the north by the Japanese combined army. And for all intents and purposes, the war should have ended there. But when the Japanese began direct assaults on the port, the Russian defenders held out. And then they held out again, and then again, and then again. The Russian defense commander had put the harbor's hillsides and bluffs to good use. His troops had dug in and they held the high ground, with clear views of the Japanese positions. Military historians commonly label this battle as the Second Battle of Port Arthur, following the naval attack on February the 8th. It began on August 1st, 1904. It would come to feature many of the new devastating weapons which would be used throughout the First World War. Artillery, machine guns, trenches, barbed wire, and massive frontal assaults against fortified enemy positions leading to skyrocketing casualties. In a single battle over six days, the two armies would lose nearly 14,000 men in a struggle over a strategic hillside. The bloodletting around Port Arthur would continue throughout the remainder of 1904, and the battle became a deadly contest of attrition. 
The Japanese could not afford a deadlock at this time, especially since they received word that Alexei Kuropatkin was mustering a relief force estimated to be as high as 200,000 men. Meanwhile in St. Petersburg, Nicholas sought a solution to the deadlock and reluctantly gave the order to the Baltic fleet stationed in Latvia to break the siege at Port Arthur. On October 15, 1904, the Baltic fleet lifted anchor and began to steam towards China and into the Book of Legends. Unfortunately for them, it would be for all the wrong reasons. The admiral in charge of the Baltic fleet was a skilled and competent naval officer by the name of Petrovich Rushatemsky. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. But the condition of his fleet was abysmal. It was made up of 48 vessels in total, but over half the ships were nearly four decades old and horribly out of date. They were slow, unreliable, and inadequately armed, but worst of all, were manned by undisciplined crews who had little military experience. Although some of the vessels, like the Admiral's flagship, are more modern, they had yet to complete the necessary sea trials before being formally deployed. Yet the Armada sailed anyway. As the fleet navigated its way out of the tricky waters of the Straits of Denmark and into the North Sea, it received news that somehow the Japanese had set a trap, either by deploying torpedo boats to intercept Rusitemsky's vessels, or by mining the waterway which funnels from the North Sea into the English Channel. While this intelligence was in no way true, and probably came about due to an overzealous radio operator, it did cause many ship crews to be thrown into a panic. On the night of October 21st, reports from the fleet's reconnaissance units indicated that they had encountered several unidentified vessels off the English coast. Thinking these must be the Japanese warships, the Russian sailors began to open fire. But as dawn broke on October 22nd, it turned out that the unidentified vessels were nothing more than harmless English fishing trawlers. The fiasco the previous night had seen one trawler sunk and two fishermen killed, and nearly 30 wounded in the shooting. The event caused an uproar in London, and it looked like the British Empire would declare war on Russia right then and there. First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher, make note of that name, ordered the Royal Navy home and channel fleets to shadow the Russian convoy as it passed through English waters. Although Nicholas II and the foreign minister Lord Lansdorf were quick to apologize, it did little to soothe the seething anger of the Royal Navy and the English public. Rusutemsky was forced to harbor in the port of Vigo along the Portuguese coast, and handed over the officers whom had been responsible for firing upon the fishing trawlers. But the admiral faced no additional punishments, but he would always maintain that he had acted as any good admiral would do. He defended his convoy against what he perceived to be a threat. The Dogger Bank incident is important for two reasons. The first is that it was clear that the Russian sailors could have used an extra day at target practice. The fact that 48 warships could only sink two fishing trawlers is proof enough of that. The second, though, turned out to be the most damning. When the Baltic fleet had departed on October 15th, it had done so in utter secrecy. Not even the French were alerted to their mission. But now with the commotion in the North Sea, the fleet had been exposed. The British who no doubt caved from French pleas not to declare war, as it would have ended the recently signed Cordial, refused a fleet entry into the Suez Canal, and as a result were forced to take the long detour around the southern tip of Africa. And if that was not bad enough, the Japanese now knew they were coming. The extended voyage meant that Rushutensky would lose several of his outdated ships to mechanical and engine failures, which reduced the armada to a mere fraction of its initial strength. When the convoy was making its way around Madagascar on New Year's Day 1905, 
news arrived that Port Arthur had finally fallen to the Japanese. In total, the second battle for Port Arthur from August 1904 to January 1905 had cost the Japanese nearly 60,000 casualties, with the Russians losing anywhere between 20 and 30,000 men. But the kicker was that the Russian Pacific Fleet was decimated, either sunk to the bottom or had fled to safer ports in the Black Sea. The Japanese fleet under Tojo was now freed from their task and had plenty of time to rearm and prepare for the oncoming Russian convoy. In Russia, the news of the fall of Port Arthur touched off revolts and mass strikes which threatened to overthrow Tsar Nicholas. Beginning on January 22nd, strikes and protests and military mutinies erupted across the country. On the morning of January 22nd, demonstrators marched on the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to present the Tsar with a list of demands, including expanded political rights and the creation of a representative assembly. Although the Tsar was not in the palace, the guards posted outside were given the order to contain the marchers and prevent them from entering the palace itself. Whether the order was given or the guards simply panicked is still up for debate, but between 10 and 11 a.m. of that morning, the guards began to open fire on the crowds, killing 100 people and wounding an additional 300. The events at the Winter Palace touched off further revolts across the country, including a mutiny on the battleship Potemkin, as the Russian public became further incensed by the inhumane treatment of the Tsarist regime. In his efforts to save face, Nicholas ordered the creation of a representative assembly called the Duma. But the aura which had once surrounded the Tsarist aristocracy since Peter the Great in 1721 had been severely shattered. Nicholas remained on the throne, but internal dissension continued to simmer. But back on the front lines, General Alexei Kuropatkin had finished drumming up reinforcements for Port Arthur and had arrived in Manchuria at the head of nearly 350,000 armed soldiers. But with Port Arthur now firmly in the hands of Japan, a detachment under the command of Field Marshal Oyama Ewayo marched off with nearly 300,000 troops in response to meet the Russian army massing 500 kilometers to the north. From February the 20th to March 10th, 1905, the two massive armies clashed around the city of Mukden, now the city of Shenyang. The Battle of Mukden would prove to be the final land engagement of the war, and was the largest battle fought since the wars of Napoleon as nearly 600,000 men were thrown into the fray. Like the Second Battle of Port Arthur, artillery became the deciding factor, as both sides employed nearly 600 medium and heavy howitzers apiece, and again, like Port Arthur, casualties were high. Russian casualties are placed at around 88,000, while the Japanese suffered 75,000 casualties. Kuropatkin, running low on resources and ammunition, ordered a withdrawal from Mukden to establish a new line of defense further north. But Field Marshal Ewayo recognized that his own forces were exhausted as well, and gave no chase to the retreating Russian general. The land campaign of the Russo-Japanese War came to an end on March 10, 1905, when Ewayo's troops occupied Mukden. By now, both armies had lost their will to fight, and would spend the remainder of the war licking their wounds and waiting to see what would happen next. But the battle for the sea had yet to have a clear winner, because by May, the Baltic fleet under Rusha Temsky had nearly completed their 33,000-kilometer journey. From his flagship, the Mikasa, Admiral Tojo Hirachira had narrowed down the possible destinations for the Russian armada. Either it would head straight for Vladivostok, which was now the only port still in Russian hands, or it could attempt a blockade of the Japanese home islands. 
Anticipating both, the Japanese admiral had positioned his warships in the harbor of Masempo, a small protected port on the southern Korean coastline. At 4.45 a.m. on May the 27th, word arrived that the Baltic fleet had entered the Straits of Tsushima, which dissect Korea and Japan and were heading straight for Vladivostok at full speed. Tojo gave the order, and his fleet sailed out to engage. By the time Rushitemsky had arrived at Tashima, his men were tired, exhausted, and seasick from their 33,000-kilometer voyage, which had taken them from the North Sea, around the coast of Africa, across the Indian Ocean, and up through the East China Sea. They had left on October 15, 1904, and had just arrived on May 27, 1905. To call the Battle of Tashima Strait an actual battle would be doing the Russian sailors a kindness. They left Lafia with 44 ships, but due to breakdowns and engine failures, had a ride of Tashima with only 28, while Tojo's vessels numbered in the 90s, with a battle-hardened crew who had spent the last year fighting around Port Arthur. When Rushitemsky entered the strait, he placed his fleet into two columns, with his heavier battleships to the starboard and the lesser armed cruisers and auxiliary support craft to the port. With the sun beginning to rise over the east, Tojo's armada steamed at full speed down from the north, and deployed parallel to the Russian port column. The auxiliary craft and cruisers were no match to the modern Japanese warships, which drew through their hulls with incredibly accurate cannon fire. Whatever response the Russian crews could muster was further hampered by the glare of the high noon sun. With the port column now soon destroyed, the starboard column was now in a complete panic. Togo used his superior speed and executed a wheeling maneuver, and formed up in a U-shape, trapping the Russian warships in the center. The now-encircled convoy, including Rushitemsky's flagship Suvorov, only managed to inflict minimal damage, as by now, the billowing smoke from the husks of their artillery craft significantly reduced visibility. When the Russians did return fire, thick clouds of gun smoke from their out-of-date cannons further hampered their accuracy. The shooting gallery continued throughout the night, but by dawn of May 28th, the Baltic fleet was completely decimated. 5,000 Russian sailors had drowned, and 22 of the 28 vessels had been sent straight to the bottom. Rushitemsky was seriously wounded, but recovered in a Japanese hospital and lived until 1909. The Japanese suffered only 120 dead and the loss of only three torpedo boats. Among those wounded was a young man by the name of Isuruko Yamamoto, who would later mastermind a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. Although the Battle of the Tashima Strait was a resounding victory, having destroyed an entire enemy fleet within hours, it was the Japanese who ended up suing for peace. By the end of May, the casualties had shocked both combatants as well as outside observers. From the surprise attack on Port Arthur to the Battle of Tashima, nearly 410,000 men had been killed, captured, or wounded. The casualty lists were shocking, and both sides were completely exhausted. In order to broker a peace, U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt agreed to monitor the negotiations which took place beginning in August 1905 at the neutral naval port of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The Russian delegation, under the leadership of Sergei Vita, had made it clear that Nicholas II had only two priorities. First, to avoid any war indemnity, and second, not to be forced to give up any territory to the Japanese. The Tsar had recognized that if he were to agree to either of these, it would no doubt bring about the total collapse of his regime, which was still facing an uncertain political situation at home. Vita, along with the Japanese foreign minister Komura Jitaro, 
agreed that Japanese sovereignty would be recognized in Korea, while Russian troops would be required to vacate Manchuria, but could leave behind a skeleton force in order to protect the sections of the East China Railway, which ran through the territory. But the talks nearly broke down over a dispute concerning the island of Sakhalin, a Russian territory in the northern Pacific Ocean which the Japanese had invaded during the war. It had no military significance, but the Japanese had invaded the island only for the purpose of using it as a bargaining chip in the post-war talks. Kimura proposed that Japan would return the island to the Tsar, but only in exchange for a war indemnity to help cover the Japanese cost of the war. In response, Vita threatened to resume the hostilities, which he knew would be a risk the Japanese simply could not afford to take. His gamble paid off as Kimura dropped the indemnity and Sakhalin was divided between the two powers. When the Treaty of Portsmouth was finally signed on September 1, 1905, both sides walked away feeling jaded and displeased with the outcome. For the Japanese, they had won every confrontation decisively, but so exhausted their forces in doing so that they had gone to the bargaining table with the enthusiasm of a defeated power. For Russia, the war had exposed the Tsar's forces as undisciplined and disorganized rabble. Although the land campaign had been a fierce contest, its naval showing was abysmal. The battle at Tsushima was an appropriate summation of the entire war effort, and while Rushitemsky's Baltic fleet had completed a Herculean task, the fleet had come to represent the overarching structural weakness in Russia, which was now an undeniable sign that its military command was weak and outdated. Naval historian Richard Hugh labeled the doomed convoy as the fleet that had to die, as its defeat was necessary to finally expose the rotten core of Tsar Nicholas's regime, short-sighted, backward, and completely out of touch with reality. But the lasting impact of the Russo-Japanese War is that it provided the world with a glimpse of the destructive nature of industrial warfare, which would soon engulf Europe. In 2005, with the passing of the war centennial, there was renewed interest in the conflict by military and cultural historians to see how the conflict helped set the stage for the bigger conflagration which would erupt in 1914. John Steinberg points out three key similarities. Its origins were linked to the imperial aspirations of both countries as they competed for influence in the Far East, its battlefields were characterized by overwhelming artillery and machine guns, and thirdly, that neither civilian nor military governments were fully prepared for the sheer violence and intensity of the fighting which followed. But if I may, I would like to add two more to Steinberg's list. The first being that during the Second Battle of Port Arthur, the Japanese had continually sent wave after wave of assaulting troops against fortified Russian defenders. When the port finally fell on New Year's Day, observers had noted that continual frontal attacks against dug-in opposition could eventually result in a breakthrough. This ideology became dominant throughout the First World War, and goes a long way in explaining the massive attritional battles which would unfold on the Somme and Verdun. And secondly, the Russo-Japanese conflict showed Europe that public opinion mattered. The revolts which began in Russia in January 1905 were brought about largely due to the frustration of the Russian war effort, and Nicholas's short-sighted belief that his nation could still come out victorious. Even in Japan, the popularity of the war began to waver as it dragged on into the new year. The prolonging of the war, coupled with the fact that Japan had just come out of a brutal war with China in 1895, weighed heavily on the war-weary population, who began to pressure their government to come to terms. Unfortunately, these lessons would be lost by 1914, 
because by then, the Russo-Japanese War was seen as little more than a regional conflict between eastern powers. The Russian army was not the German army, nor was the Japanese navy the Royal Navy. And so on the eve of August 1914, few in Europe took heed of the events which unfolded in the Pacific a decade earlier. Recent scholarship has helped bring the war from a footnote in the history of the First World War and into one of the more influential factors because it changed the way European nations viewed one another. Russia was no longer as feared as it once was, and would be looking to regain prestige at every opportunity. So when trouble in the Balkans would begin again in 1912 and 1913, Russia would find itself rubbing shoulders with Austria, Hungary, and Germany as it was eager to rebuild its shattered honor. Also, with its defeat in the east, it would finally put its eastward expansion on hold, and would begin to open talks with Great Britain, which forever tipped the balance of power in Europe. There will be no episode next week, as it is a civic holiday here in Canada, and I will be taking off to a cottage country from Friday to Monday, and will miss out on much needed production time. But the Great War Podcast will be back in two weeks, refreshed and ready to go for Monday, August the 11th, when we will dive into the growing naval crisis between Great Britain and Germany, and the first test of the Anglo-French Cordial. So thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you in two weeks.